Forgotten Hollywood with Chris Wineland is a production of Revive Studios. Between 1976 and 1992, Christian comedian Mike Warnke had released 15 different albums, four books, and a VHS tape. Warnke's ministry was booming, and his ministry had brought in over $12 million. He was without a doubt the number one Christian comedian of all time and captivated millions of people with his story that were based off of his life and in the occult. The only problem, of course, is that all of those stories were a lie. I'm Chris Wyman, and this is the podcast that combines Hollywood stories you might know with Christian stories you don't know. This is Forgotten Hollywood. Today, we're going to dive into the forgotten history of Mike Warnke's meteoric rise and epic fall, as well as the origins and history of the increasingly popular subgenre of comedy we call Christian comedy. And before I dive in, I'd love to do a pop quiz. So let's see if you can guess this question correctly. Which Christian has shattered records by becoming the most selling comedian of their genre? Is it Tim Hawkins, Shonda Pierce, John Crist, or Anita Renfro? We'll get to this answer later on in the episode. But first, I'd love to tell you a little bit about my origin with Christian stand-up comedy. Now, before I toured as a Christian comedian myself and was blessed to perform at packed festivals and churches, which has been an honor. Uh, in fact, before I even began my career in stand-up comedy as a whole, I had never heard of Christian comedians. I, I didn't know that it was a thing at all. Not until I sat under the bleachers of an after show at a Christian festival in Ohio that my mom had brought me to see this man who had quickly become one of my favorite comedians of all time, Bob Smiley. Here's a quick snippet of his fast-paced style as seen on Dry Bar Comedy. And so, in fact, one time the, uh, my parents took us uh, into a bigger town to the... Uh, um, see, I wasn't going to tell the story and it just popped in my brain. The Kitty Casino. The place where kids gamble. Chuck E. Cheese, yes. <laughs> That is a casino for children. They don't even hide it anymore. You gotta go through a turnstile, there's no clocks on the wall, there's a six-foot mafia rat walking around hand, handing out tokens. So my parents dropped me and my brother off. I did really well at the skee-ball table that night. I left 200 tickets up and... <laughs> well, now we know who gambles. <laughs> and, um... And I'm not judging you, because I gamble. I, I, I gamble today, actually. I had Chinese food. So... <laughs> and the house is going to win. Um, anyway... I was 17, which is a year before I started comedy. I didn't know that I was going to become a comedian. And uh, it was the age of 17 that I had first heard Bob Smiley. And I really 
uh, caught on to his comedy. I, I thought it was great. I was surprised by his fast-pacedness, by his ability to make people laugh. I mean, in fact, I, I didn't even know. I had just gotten saved. I didn't know that Christians were even allowed to laugh, to be honest. It was something I was not uh, aware of because the pastors that I had seen were very serious. So I was even thinking, hey, maybe I'm at a place where I need to start getting serious and, and stop joking so much. And then this guy comes on and, and uh, you know, possibly changes my history because that was it. I was like, yep, I think it's okay to be funny. And what I loved was not only was he just telling jokes about church, but he also started making fun of church people, which I particularly loved because I just got saved and I thought Christians were weird. Um, And some of us still definitely are. But this sent me down this rabbit hole of Christian comedians. And I started to discover more and more about the world of Christian comedy. Now, there's not an exact um, route that we can go to for Christian comedy. There's not exactly a Christian comedy hall of fame that you can go to and look at the very first comedian that would claim themselves to be Christian comedians. We're going to talk about a few in this episode, and hopefully we can together discover where it kind of came from. Um, There has, however, been a lot of history in, um, as I had spoken in the last episode of vaudeville acts, that there is a little bit of clean comedy and did seem to have some connections, uh, give or take, with a little bit of Christianity. But it really wasn't until the 80s that anybody began to coin the phrase Christian comedian. So it's not like there's a huge history going on, but there's definitely a huge future for this sub-genre as it has become extremely popular. Now, one of the things as I was doing my research Um, when I was 17 and started to go, okay, what is Christian comedy? Well, I stumbled upon a TV series that quickly became one of my favorite TV series. And and if you happen to be any of those people that would get VHSs of VeggieTales, you probably got this VHS as well. And it's a show called Bananas. Bananas Comedy was a family-friendly comedy show that began airing in 2004. And it showcased clean and Christian comedians from all over the country. It also starred uh, emerging comedians who had become really, really big names in the Christian industry, such as Jeff Allen, Taylor Mason, and the musically inclined Bob Stromberg. The show did a great job of helping to launch the careers of comics who had become extremely well-known in this industry. But it really wasn't until the creation of YouTube that Christian comedy would become viral uh, again for the first time since the 1980s. One of the things I liked about that show is that it started to show different styles from the very beginning of these Christian comics that had very different styles of comedy. One in particular um, that I I feel is worth mentioning, if you haven't listened, you should listen to this comic, just get to know because it's such a different style, is Brad Stein. He is an angry Christian comic in a way. He gets up on stage and he just talks about how every everything is not the way it used to be and you know we're getting away from the Bible and all this stuff and it's really really enticing. Like you sit there and you cannot stop watching and around the same time that I had discovered um these Christian comics I went over to a friend's house and um this friend just popped in this DVD of Brad Stein and I sat there again and I was like man I am exploring And I'm discovering all of these new different genres within the genre. And it's really unique. And so if you uh, get a chance to listen to any of these, in fact, if you follow me on um, my Spotify account, I will have a playlist of Christian comedians that are very different, very unique, 
and you can go ahead and uh, discover that. But uh, it really wasn't until the creation of YouTube that other people got to know about Christian comedy. It was such a small niche of people that was really getting into it until YouTube came and then it just went viral. Um, and you know this, this viral uh, Christian comedy really started with a man by the name of Tim Hawkins. Chick-fil-A I could eat there seven times a day Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A If you are a homeschooled kid, you know who he is. In 2009, Tim Hawkins uploaded his Chick-fil-A song, which resulted in instant YouTube fame. He made uh, himself so famous just by doing a song about Chick-fil-A. And to be honest, if you've noticed, now any comedian gets famous by doing a Chick-fil-A song. I've, uh, I've joked and said, you know, what I really need to do to push myself to the next level is just make a song about Chick-fil-A. Um, but I, I refuse to do it, and I'm not doing it. <laughs> At least not now. We'll see. Maybe in a little bit. But this song made him a viral comedian and it a lot of the other videos he was putting out also went viral uh, talking about the styles of prayer and making fun of hand gestures talking about songs that um you know what would atheists sing in an atheist church uh, a much of a bunch of different very very goofy bits uh especially the the one that uh, I loved is the hedge a protection bit that he would do, you know, about like, how, why does somebody think that the most powerful prayer is to pray for a hedge, you know, and then the devil walks up and he's like, what is this shrubbery? I can't get around it. And so that was his like very goofy. It's got like a Jim Gaffigan style of comedy and it made him very, very famous. He um, ended up getting over 300 million views online. And uh, he sold out over 100 shows a year across the country. It really was not until 2019 at the Christian Comedy Association. Yes, that's a group. If you are a Christian comic, I highly recommend you get to know that group. Um, they're a fabulous um, organization. But it, he announced in 2019 to at the Christian Comedy Association conference that he had felt like the Lord was telling him to take a break in 2020 to spend time with his family. Now, I'm beginning, just between you and me, to believe that that message was less of a calling and more of a prophecy because when 2020 hit, every comedian had to stay home with their family regardless of what they were planning on doing. So, um, you know, he, he really should have just said, this is a warning from the Lord. Uh, it's it's coming. But, um, but he took a break in 2020, and I believe he's just now starting to get into some bits again. But it was... Um, really, really popular and well-received online, uh, Tim Hawkins. But he wasn't the only one. In fact, there was another popular comedian um, that to this day has just shattered record after record, and that is a comedian by the name of Shonda Pierce. She shattered these records, and she has become the most selling female comedian of all time. She's released at least seven comedy specials, each of which has become extremely popular, uh, here's her at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Well, it's good to be here. We're in the Ryman Auditorium. Isn't that incredible? It's a beautiful place. I love it because, you know, it used to be a church. Isn't that precious? Y'all are sitting like in church pews. Those of y'all are uncomfortable. Guess you ain't been in church in a while, have you? 
Now, a fun behind-the-scenes tip I know, I happen to know about Shonda Pierce is, uh, from what I hear, is that she will record these specials. And, and in the height of it, she was recording a special very, very often. She would just keep going. And so uh, from comics that opened up for her, what they said is that she would record the special at the beginning of the tour. Um, and then, you know, they'd be able to sell those DVDs everywhere. While she was doing that, she was constantly refining that special during the rest of the tour. So what they said is that what was on DVD and what was at that last show was a completely different show. And it was a very refined um, and polished uh, comedy show. So people started to catch on and they would want to go to Shonda Pierce's uh, shows a couple of times because they wanted to be able to see how she would refine it from what was on the DVD. So it's a really interesting um, fact about her. And she's a very hardworking comedian. She always has been. Shonda Pierce got her start working at the Opryland theme park in Nashville, Tennessee, where she performed as Grand Ole Opry star Minnie Pearl for six years before making the jump into stand-up comedy. And now she's ranked amongst Polestar.com's uh, top-selling live performers, and five of her DVDs have been certified gold, um, which signifies the sale of more than 50,000 units. And three of her specials have been certified platinum, which is great, signifying sales of more than 100 thousand units these that's a lot you guys um and so the, these rock star comedians have helped pave the way for younger comics like john christ and um jaron myers and uh let's let's put myself in for fun um have been able to really uh get a following going because uh, these guys have really paved the way. And so you you read these, you see these young comics now coming out, and some of them are really getting on the trends of certain things that, that the older comics talked about, such as Chick-fil-A or The Way You Can Pray or youth group games or various church memes, whatever it is. And uh, it really has created this Christian comedy subgenre to become a huge gold rush of popularity. But before it was so popular, it first needed to be built and then inadvertently destroyed by the same man who built it. He calls himself the godfather of well, Christian comedy. Bother me. How did you become a comedian? I mean, were you just naturally funny all your life? Well, no, I was bizarre all my life. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, when I first started uh, preaching, you know, I, I used my testimony a lot. And my testimony was so gross that I started throwing a few jokes in to lighten things up. And lo and behold, everybody liked my jokes better than they did my testimony. And all of a sudden, you know, now I'm a Christian comedian. And uh, I was talking with Hicks and Cohagen the other day, and, and uh, they were saying, you know, you're the grandfather of Christian comedy, the rest of us would. And, and I thought, gosh, you know, I've been around long enough to be the grand something, grandfather of something other than my own granddaughter. You know, <laughs> grandfather of an idea. As In well 1946, as there was born a man who would go on to change the entirety of Christian America and the way we think about Christian comedy. This man's name is Mike Warnke. Now, I have been teasing him at the beginning of this episode and a little bit in the last episode because it is just such a unique story, and it's worth, honestly, he is worth having his own episode, uh, and um, I have not had many people that are aware of him. I uh, first kind of discovered him at a friend's house many, many years ago, and this is after I had discovered you know, Christian comedy, and uh, it, was a, it was a nice man who was older, and I was working with him. And he had said, oh, if you like Christian comedy, you need to listen to this guy. And so he pulled out all of these old records. I mean, this is 1980s records we're talking about. He'd put them on a record player and he'd play them for me. And I remember just sitting back and, and really 
being enticed by this guy. I was laughing really hard and I thought, man, what a unique story, um, which I'll get into in a second. What what a unique um, humor. And I thought he was genuinely good. It has a little bit of, at least for his time, I felt it has um, some, some really good sharp jokes. Um, some of it is sharp. Uh, some of it definitely sounds like it was from somebody else. And so I, I was really fond of it. And as I was listening to all these specials, I remember the friend said, yeah, I'm glad you like him. And I said, yeah, where is he now? Is he dead? Like he's completely gone from history. And uh, like what in the world happened to him? And then that's when my friend kind of sheepishly said, yeah, well, like um, everybody kind of excommunicated him. And that was the moment I said, what? And to this day, um, I still collect his albums when I find them at record stores just because it's so interesting that he became such a social pariah that people have marked him completely out of history. I mean, it would be equivalent to saying that we don't like VeggieTales anymore. So now nobody will know of VeggieTales when there's at least 2 million adults that grew up uh, huge fans of VeggieTales and people were huge fans of Mike Warnke. I mean, millions of people were humongous fans of Mike Warnke. And so that's why he is worth the conversation in this episode. If you love comedy just as much as I do, you probably get frustrated trying to find clean, family-friendly comedy that won't make you nervous to blast in your living room. That's why I'm a huge fan of Dry Bar Comedy Plus. It's the number one clean comedy channel in the world with over 100 million listeners. The channel has over 400 hilarious comedy specials, including my comedy special, I'm Terrified, which has been made exclusively for Dry Bar Comedy. Use code Chris Wineland to get a free month of Drybar Comedy Plus and watch my special along with many others. That's drybarcomedy.com and use promo code Chris Wineland. So he was born in Evansville, Indiana, and he had a very char- uh, hard childhood as far as we can tell. His mother and father both died by the time he was 12 years old. And that was proven, and that left him as an orphan. After this, Mike went to Sparta, Tennessee to live with some of his aunts, and he moved once again after that with his other aunt and soon-to-be uncle in San Bernardino, California. So Mike Warnke, at a very young age, was moving around, and everything was very uncertain in his life. According to him, after he graduated from high school, Mike Warnke took a dark dive into the occult for several months, even gaining the title of high priest in his coven. Warnke left the cult in June 1966 to join the U.S. Navy, where he would be um, uh, apparently very high up in the Navy. After leaving said uh, Navy in 1972, Mike Warnke wrote the number one best-selling book, The Satan Seller, that sold over 3 million copies. Now, Mike Warnke... Uh, his fame completely blew up after this book. He really, truly became the largest Christian comedian of that time. And he also became one of the largest evangelists of that time. He was bringing in over $12 million um, between 1984 and 1990. He would um, go to these sold-out auditoriums, not just churches, but huge auditoriums sold out. He would come in in a private jet and he had his own limousine that would drive him around. It, there would be people that would crowd the streets to go see this man. And um, I, I think it's worth saying that it was his story and the way he told it um, because, uh, you know, it, it's, he wasn't 
unnecessarily like uh, he wasn't he didn't look like a model okay he looked like a, an interestingly funny looking man and so his comedy really was a big part of it his, his comedy and his looks went together very well if you can see him on YouTube and you'll see the way that he uses um, his facial expressions to really complement a lot of the jokes that he tells but he was without a doubt a very funny and very famous person in this time. I'm a Christian because of what happened in my heart, not what happened to my hair. The Lord didn't come to change my shirt. He came to change my life. And he did that. He did that because I accepted him as my personal savior. Because in a mob closet at 11.30 at night, on the 22nd of August, in boot camp in San Diego, California, in 1966, I prayed this simple prayer. Lord, I don't know if you can love a Satanist, but if you can, I'm asking you to do something with me. And 22 years ago, the Lord answered my prayer, and I've never been sorry that I prayed it. And I'm a Christian, whether you like it or not. So, go ahead and think of me as Brother Mike. It'll be okay. But you see, it gets weirder than that, because I was ordained in 1975. So for the past 13 years, I have been a card-carrying, credentials-holding minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think upon it. Meditate upon the ramifications of such a thing. Let it twist your transistors and roast your rheostat. It's not Brother Mike. It's Reverend Warnke. Freak you out yet? Hey, look. I am a college graduate. I am seminary trained. I have two bachelor's degrees. I have two master's degrees and a doctorate in divinity from Antioch University. If you're having trouble with Brother Reverend, just think of me as Dr. Mike. <laughs> now, Mike Warnke made a killing off of his stand-up, and it was based off of mainly off of his story being in the occult and a little bit of his military experience. And so, uh, again, you know, he would just sell out these awesome shows. He also was featured regularly on Oprah 2020 and Larry King, as well as a lot of other big major shows. But those are kind of the biggest ones. And his goal in getting on these shows was to speak about the, uh, the occult in a nation at the time that was ravaged with fear about the occult. If you do any research, what you would know is that around the, the 70s and 80s, people were told these stories about these uh, demon worshipers and witches and Wiccans. And um, everybody was so scared. There, you know, people would go and, and paint symbols on, on walls. And so parents would say, you know, where are my kids? What What is going on? Because the television would constantly pump this information and say, are your kids a part of the occult without you knowing? And um, what would happen is a lot of TV shows started to look around and say, well, who do we know? Do we have any proof? Who do we know that was in the occult? And many, many people um, would come out that became very popular. Warren Key was one of them and said, yes, I was in the occult. I can tell you the firsthand information. And uh, this is what really started to kind of feed this fear a little bit more. And, and just so much so that the U.S. government actually started an organization um, or a, de a department in the FBI that was focused on uh, the occult and, and getting these people that were child sacrificing and all this stuff. And so, um, you know, I don't know too much about this subject as a whole. Um, I don't know how 
uh, any of the proof that they have or any lack of proof. I, I, I don't know anything. I've heard a lot of varying opinions of people saying, you know, that a lot of these events never happened. And I have a lot of uh, people that have told me these events absolutely have happened. But one thing I know is that Mike Warnke became the expert in the occult. And uh, for many, many years, he was telling about it. And nobody asked for any proof until one day when it all came falling down. And that was in 1992 by a Christian magazine. And I think that that's important to know because um, it almost, I think it made the, the non-Christian people have a little bit more of validity to it um, to know, okay, it was a Christian magazine. And I, I also think it's important for you and me to hear this, to know that this magazine called Cornerstone Magazine wasn't just um, picking up an article for um, attention. They had been studying the uh, people that were uh, talking about the occult for some time now, and they had actually just uh, blown up uh, somebody's fake story previously before Mike Warnke. And so they were doing research to the other people and finding out that other stories were absolutely fake and uh, and none of them were true at all. And it kind of led them to Mike Warnke. Then they started to do uh, about nine months to a year of of deep uh, studying and they interviewed his friends and his family members and they started to find some rather shocking uh, information about Mike Warnke. And the biggest one, of course, is that he was, did not seem to have actually been in an occult at all. Now, one of the other things that had happened when um, the magazine went around and um, asked stories to his friends is that his friends in high school had said, you know, yeah, pretty much nothing of what he said was true. And they would say, well, then why did you allow it to be said? And they said, well, you know, he's a comic, like we're just kind of letting him talk. We didn't think any of it would be a big deal. But, um, you know, a, a, a few of the things that he would write in his big book, The Satan Seller, uh, turned out to be, most of it turned out to not be true. He said in the book that he was a big um, bad boy in high school. And everybody said, actually, he kind of kept to himself. And if you had to put him in one direction or the other, everybody said he probably, you would say, was more bullied than he was a, a bully. Um, he also says in that story, Mike Warnke also says in his book that um, he had put a curse when he was at the height of, of you know, uh, being a, a, a warlock, that he had put a curse on a building and the building um, had caught on fire. But when the magazine, and the building had caught on fire and then ceased to exist, that it was just empty is what the book said, that it never existed before. And so when the magazine went to go do research, they had found out that uh, the building was alive and well, and it was just a different, it wasn't that same restaurant that he said, it just got bought out by somebody else. Um, he had a best friend that uh, Mike Warnke actually told, or he asked his best friend to sign before the book went out, just to agree that all this information was right. And the friend didn't sign it. He said, no, like none of this is true. And so they, this magazine was really the only one that just started asking questions. And that's when they started to find all of the holes in uh, this man's story. And when it came out, they started to reveal all of the stories. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a couple other examples because a few of these are exactly what, um, what kind of gave it away for me because I started to do my own research and I thought, well, you know, what, what is true and, and what is not? And one of the major flaws in his story that, that really did it for me was that his time in the um, occult as a, you know, just being in the cult in general 
was only in the span of nine months, according to his stories, which means that he started, he was recruited in, and he went up the ranks and then became the head of it all in nine months. And too many of the stories that he tells just doesn't make sense that it all happened in, in, in only nine months. It's just kind of way too much, including apparently he did a road trip across the country and he joined a peace march that uh, historically didn't happen at that time. It actually happened two years before he claims that he was a part of this peace march. But, you know, it really goes um, to, to say that we live in a different society now because back then, if somebody could write a book like this, it was it would take this long. It took years, decades for anybody to figure out that that there were flaws in what he was saying. Because, you know, it's not like they had Google or anything, right? You had to say, oh, he was in that march. When was that march? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure he was right. Okay, let's keep going. Otherwise, they'd have to go to the library. They'd have to look up information. They'd have to, you know, it was just such a different time. Uh, And now here we are kind of in that information age where if somebody says, hey, I did this, this, and this, you could Google it and be like, no, you didn't. There's no way you did it because you just told me the year and the date and that's not at all what happened. And so it really, it didn't take until somebody had done the research. And I feel that, you know, it's up for debate, of course. Some people don't like uh, in the Christian world when a Christian magazine finds flaws and and puts it out um, in in information. And I I totally get it. But uh, a couple of verses that had come to my mind was, uh, you know, in Galatians 1.6, Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, um, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So I think that both of those verses are really important as we um, continue to go into this story a little bit more, just to know that, um, you know, even biblically, there is some allowance to keep each other accountable. And I hear this story and I think, I wonder what would have happened if after he had gotten saved, which was uh, around his time in the military, if somebody had kept him accountable and said, hey, some of these stories you're making up are a lie or they, they seem fabricated or they seem, you know, um, maybe told a little extra than they really are. And would that accountability have, have made a difference? And so um, this magazine, possibly at this point, because he was at the highest height that he could be, uh, perhaps this magazine did everything it could at that point, I believe, and I'm not sure you can't um, quote me on it, but I believe that he, uh, that the Christian magazine had reached out to him as well and uh, and you know wasn't really given much of a response until the story went big in 1992. Now, Christian Cornerstone Magazine published it in June of 92, and this completely debunked Mike Warnke's claims to have been in the occult due to, uh, again, a various amount of dates, times, everything that was just not matching up, and over 100 interviews with his friends, schoolmates, and families. So everything was right there. And there was this extensive amount of claims that were made and then proven false. Some of them include a common story of uh, his claim that he spent time with Charles Manson um, in in a satanic ritual in 1966. However, Charles Manson was actually imprisoned at that time 
due to parole violation. So when they had proved the timing and everything, again, it was that same situation where they said, um, it's actually not true. Um, another is uh, Mike, in which Mike Warnke, uh, he was continually saying that he was the high priest of a coven of over 1,500 people, which again, it only took him less than nine months, apparently, to become the high priest of the coven. So there's so many flaws here, but he becomes the, the high priest of this coven of over 1,500 people when uh, that also was proven false. And then when it was, Warnke actually tried to save the lie by telling Christianity today that there had only been 13 members of his coven, not 1,500, as originally claimed. And that of those 13, the whereabouts of five were completely unknown to him, and then the other eight had since died. So he had no proof. He couldn't point at anybody. Um, he had nobody to, to prove his side at all. And so Warnke um, did everything he could to keep it. He stayed strong in his story, and he is quoted as saying, exaggeration did creep into some of my stories, but my testimony is still my testimony. His ministry then went defunct and closed doors 100 days after the article was published. He has since tried to make a comeback, uh, releasing uh, a new book, three new albums in the 2000s, and doing the occasional small comedy show around Kentucky. But um, he never quite recovered from being exposed. And this hidden history story here is... It's rather shocking, and, and, and I think there's a lot of things to learn from. One is what I had uh, talked about earlier, which is that I do think it's important for us as Christians to keep other Christians accountable. One of the things that I do on this show is I have um, someone who works for me, the great, awesome Johnny Fry, and I have him double-check um, my uh, sources before I say it because I want to be made accountable. I don't want to give you guys information and make you start repeating it and then find out that it wasn't true at all. And so I've been um, kind of um, paranoid in that whole situation where I'm like, let's make sure that what we're saying is with truth. And I, I think it's important to know that because as Christians, we are following Jesus who claims to be the truth, which he is. You know, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we as Christians should be the truth as well. And, um, you know, Mike Warnke, I I've, uh, have not had... Uh, the opportunity to meet him in person. Uh, I do pray for him uh, regularly. I have no idea um, where he's at with his heart, but I do know that he goes on YouTube and he does devotions. Um, he uh, has admitted in many interviews before that he had um, exaggerated and he still kind of uh, maintains that part. I also know that he has been in um, a couple of uh, conferences that I had missed and um, friends of mine had said, yeah, he went there and he is just at this place where he's deflated and he doesn't really want to speak in public too much about the situation. Um, but, you know, there's some wisdom to, to take from him. And so um, wherever he is, my prayers are with him 100%. And I just really hope that the Lord would continue to um, work in his heart. And now, again, this is coming from a guy that uh, loves entertainment history, but I also see these people as human beings, not as um, just a story, but as a human being that, that needs Christ. And so as we continue, um, one thing to know is that uh, there are so many different stories amongst all of these stories. And if you have any information that you would like to share about Mike Warnke or about any of the other Christian comedians that we talked about in this episode, feel free to message me. You can DM me at Chris Wineland Comedy on Instagram or visit chriswineland.com. Thank you, and I look forward to next episode. 
For more information on Forgotten Hollywood, visit my website at chriswineland.com. You can also find all of my source material from this episode and other past episodes on my page as well. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at chriswinelandcomedy. We'll be back next week with another surprising episode of Forgotten Hollywood. Thank you.